I just felt like the switch never got flipped back. It's disassociation, but I didn't know that at, at the time. You know, it probably took me about six months for my psychologist to get through my head the idea of duality. You can be grateful and upset, optimistic for the future and still hurt about the past. You can be grateful for one child and be grieving that you've decided not to have another. So it can be both. Everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. It's been a while since the last time, but this episode is dedicated to one of our beautiful listeners who originally emailed to generously suggest three other women, but it was her story I was captivated by. I think I spend longer writing these intros than I do on the entire episode because I always have so much more to say and really want to do justice to the guest after I've gone back and re-listened to the chat. And Kate Bridgman really epitomizes so many things about this show. Firstly, she gives a name to something I've been bumbling on about for weeks now trying to express eloquently, duality, that things can be tough and beautiful or good and bad at the same time. So while some episodes like this one do cover heavier topics that might seem a little anti-yay on their face, it's to show how adversity can be overcome, that it is also quite an important and common part of life that's totally normal, but that yay can be one layer in a multifaceted experience. Secondly, that yay isn't just starting a business and having a profile of some sort, even though, of course, we have lots of wonderful guests who have taken that pathway. It's a privilege to show a different side to our more famed guests, but also an absolute joy to introduce you to those you haven't, like Kate and her entrepreneurial journey in health and education. Thirdly, that our brains are incredibly complex and we are constantly impacted by so many factors, societal expectations, misconceptions, pride, worthiness, perfectionism. And these conversations really do help me and I hope help you guys too build the self-awareness that we need to wade through these concepts and then ultimately, of course, find our yay. There are so many other things I can say, but I'll let you soak it all up in our chat. Just a little warning, we cover some deep moments of Kate's journey with perinatal anxiety and depression, otherwise known as PANDA, to help normalize and bring awareness to the topic. As you'll hear, I think a lot of us misunderstand or don't really know the right things to say or the things to look for either in ourselves or to provide support for loved ones. But her story is so beautifully reassuring about coming out the other end after breaking to rebuild and I hope it helps even one person feel more equipped less alone or more reassured in their own journey. Kate welcome to the show. Thank you. This one has been a long time coming I think almost a year now since you first emailed me (laughs) and of course COVID among many other things got in our way but all good things take time and I'm so happy we're here now. (laughs) Kate is a lovely listener of the podcast who emailed me to suggest three other women as guests Mm. but I read a few lines of her story and thought oh 
I want to talk to you. <laughs> so to kick off before the usual icebreaker, how are you? You're a fellow Victorian. These are strange times and I think it's so important just to check in with each other. So how are you going? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, in terms of being in Melbourne. So we're kind of homeschooling, but really fortunate to be sharing that with my husband. So I think some days are tricky, but then I think I also I have to be grateful to be able to work from home. I'm still getting paid. We're still secure. Mm. You know, I, I come from help working in health. And so there's a lot of people that have to get up and go to work every day and put themselves kind of, I guess, at risk. Um, and then their kids and families are impacted. So most of the time we're trying to be grateful. Um, <laughs> it's funny, that being said, we did just, my husband and I did decide this morning over morning coffee, we were going to call an end to the term today. So we've finished two days. <laughs> um, he's had enough and I'm like, yeah, fine. <laughs> but yeah, I think overall, you just got to be grateful. Yeah. And so far, everyone we kind of know is doing well and okay. So um, I think it's relative. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it is so relative, but we easily forget that and go into a bit of a cycle of feeling a bit down and then feeling guilty for feeling down and then refinding our gratitude and then kind of going through it all again. It's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. I always have to remember that being grateful doesn't mean you can't also find it tough, mm. but gratitude in those moments really is just such a powerful strategy to keep that positive perspective. I think it is. I think it's a good default, you know, and, um, just mentioning you know homeschooling is tricky but we have had these moments where you know we've got to watch Jack's reading groups or we get to see the class do show and tell we, we wouldn't have been able to do that if he was at school or I wouldn't have been able to work full time but be involved in his everyday schooling so mm. um, it's his first year of school and he's spent most of it with us oh. but um, <laughs> I guess it means I've spent far more time with him this year than I had intended to. <laughs> Silver lining. And watching him learn to read and watching him with his peers and things. So I think it's amazing to watch the kids, how they've kind of adapted online and yeah. just the craft of their teachers. Like they're really amazing the way they draw in the little people and everyone's got to pretend like we know how this is going to end. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't that just a big metaphor for being an adult overall, pretending like we actually know how things are going to work out and <laughs> know that everything's okay, but actually we're all just winging it. <laughs> but that's a part of seizing the A I really love to remind us of, that you don't have to know the end and just to get comfortable with that uncertainty. And in terms of your pathway, I mean, obviously we'll come back to it later, but a big part of why we connected is I really wanted to get someone in education who was really passionate about teaching and yeah. primary teaching was something you always wanted but didn't end up doing and yet now you've ended up getting your dose of it anyway in homeschooling <laughs> yeah, yeah I have I have and I think um you know I, I did end up working with with kids and I'm uh, good with other people's um I think we're all good at our day job <laughs> yeah I think it has been lovely to observe learning and I think because I love learning and education so it's been nice to kind of be brought into that with, with Jack. Yeah. yeah, that's so wonderful. And I think the homeschooling experience is probably part of your answer to the actual icebreaker question with parenthood being the great leveller of all people. <laughs> what is the most down to earth thing about you? Yeah, look, full disclosure on the homeschooling is that my husband's doing most of that, to be honest. So I'm, uh, I'm involved in literacy and we kind of tap in or out, you know, it is inevitable um, that some Jack doesn't like whoever's in charge that day. Of course. Um, <laughs> so I think everyone's pretty down to earth at the moment. I think <laughs> my base 
things like you've got to be presentable, but we're dyeing our own hair, or um, <laughs> you can never quite see what's in the background um, on Zoom meetings or teaching in my office. And I'm really grateful I have a space. Some people are kind of teaching in their bedrooms and things just next to the bathroom. And so at any given time, Jack can go to the toilet with the door open and everyone can hear that. Um, oh, so joy. So that kind of <laughs> working from home, living at work scenario, I think um, it's all pretty real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's made everyone relax a little bit about just being human, the whole like working from home but living at work thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So on to the first section, which you will know is your way TA, where we trace back all the chapters that led you to this one. And something that really drew me in about yours is how you actually knew quite early what you really wanted, which isn't that common. I think a lot of us just have no idea back in the early days, mm. but were coaxed out of it, which I think is sadly quite common and an ongoing theme of the podcast. The various pressures and societal metrics and other people's opinions that we're influenced by and often away from our yay. Mm. And we actually went to the same academic entry school that is an incredible, incredible learning environment that I credit for so much of who I've ended up becoming but I think it does definitely skew the way you perceive worthy career paths and I love that you've made your way back to education in a different way but take us back to those earlier times and that whole process of kind of being persuaded away from something. Yeah look I guess I've always wanted to be grown up so I loved kinder and school in a way as an oldest child and um, you kind of treated like a little person or a real person and with ideas and kind of open up that world and I just always loved my teachers you know I loved primary school I loved um, just hung on every word they said I loved the praise in acknowledgement I loved you know that I, I did well at high school but not well at uni at all because at high school we were we were taught and we were filled and we were told how to do it and we were coached for assessment and um, I think I, I loved that kind of strength of the mind and um, just learning and knowing and nearly next year's my 20 year reunion. So I'm 20 years out of high school, but most years I've still kind of learned or done something new. Um, yeah. I've had a lot of jobs and moved on quickly because I just always like that kind of intellectual challenge or hustle. You know, I've, I've always worked publicly, so it's not an entrepreneurial hustle but just that kind of like what's next this that so I loved that right from school and um, I wanted to be a primary school teacher because I loved and was so shaped by my teachers and loved kids and just loved you know a bit of a Pollyanna bit of an optimist (laughs) so I love the the world through children's eyes you know and um, so I did I wanted to be a a primary school teacher but was at a a school Sarah as you know um, that really you know encourages women and people to be the very best they can and I, I was really first in family to finish year 12 I don't come from an academic family at all or really a family that has ever gone to uni or high school so I was really fortunate to be cancelled by people at at school and I remember saying to the careers coordinator and I was school captain at the time so it was pretty high expectations were you who you'd be and what you do and I wanted to be um kinder teacher or primary school teacher and I actually think now it's really sad that it was a teacher themselves that told me not to be a teacher because they didn't realize the impact teachers and educators can have the fact that they didn't recommend their own profession as, as being impactful and said oh well if you like kids 
what about being a pediatrician? You know, because our school was like law, medicine. I'm not that smart. Um, <laughs> you know, I was a 96, not a 99. Oh, um, the shame. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, I often joke, now that I live in the suburbs, I often joke that um, you drive around in the local high schools in, in December or January will say, congratulations, ducks, 92.4 or 87. And I thought we wouldn't have even gotten the newsletter for that, you know. <laughs> Definitely not the newsletter. (laughs) So for a bit of background, guys, quickly, the school we went to was a very rigorous academic environment, which was such a wonderful place for the curious mind, which I think Mm. you can probably Mm. hear we both have. Mm. (laughs) And I wholly credit that kind of competitive but very supportive environment for bringing me up far beyond what I ever would have achieved in, in a different school. But it was very convenient for me that what I wanted to get into, maybe not what I wanted to do forever, but the course that I wanted to get into was also valued as a career. But it was never lost on me that if your joy didn't fit certain intellectual boxes, it was sort of seen as a bit of a waste of your intellect. I mean, like 80% of us in my year got above 99. So you really were kind of pushed to choose the law, the doc, you know, medicine, pharmacy, those kind of, you know, career pathways that would use your brain regardless of whether you actually wanted to use your brain that way. That's what I mean. I was average, 96. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you were average, but <laughs> I think we all respond really differently to that. There are even studies on how people respond to changing from a big fish in a small pond to then becoming mm. a small fish. Like there's examples, you know, in the NBA and and then in Ivy League universities in the States. I think it drives some and then deters others. But either way, I think there'd be many people like you who were really coaxed away from something they loved by the objective perception we were exposed to of what's success or what's worthy. So talk us through that thought process at that time. Like, Did you kind of have it in your mind but then ultimately decide that, you know, primary teaching wasn't worthy and then choose something else? Like, you know, I know you went into speech pathology. Was that because it was kind of more worthy brain-wise? Um, no, look, I never thought that I, 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 you know, kind of had secretly wanted to do that, but probably, you know, pretty early on that, that wasn't something that we were profiled for, or certainly on careers day, there were never primary school teachers that came to speak to us about that. For me, I loved that environment because I'd been really teased at school for being smart and I wasn't overly smart. I was bright and I liked the attention. So not only I think was I a lot more successful by going to that school, but um, it was okay to be good. And I actually was only good. I wasn't like amazing. So I didn't feel any pressure on me because I was never top of the class. I was like average. And that was great Mm. because I was lifted by the true intelligence around me. And I also remember, you know, there's no way I would have got into medicine. And so um, kind of having that talk around, I also liked drama and public speaking and and debating, you know, I'm a talker. You might have picked that up. And um, (laughs) so then it was like, well, what about speech pathology? Because they work with children. There's kind of science, arts and language in in there. The enter was a bit higher up. So that kind of, you know, satisfied our school. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll just teach people like one-on-one. And I liked that idea and I liked kind of that performance part and, and language part and communication part coming into it. So, it, yeah, that seemed like a, a really nice fit. 
what I didn't realize at the time was that you can't just be a speech pathologist in pediatrics. You have to study everything. So, um, <laughs> you know, you have to learn how to work in hospitals with people that have had strokes and can't swallow or have had car accidents and head or neuro or that kind of stuff. So um, that was pretty full on, but it was also amazing because you kind of learn what communication really is mm. and, um, that human element or need to connect and as a social person. Um, so I loved that. I really did. And um, I finished uni, didn't qualify for honours, did pretty poorly at uni academically because I didn't have the coaching or the cheerleading or the spoon feeding or people that knew my name. <laughs> but, uh, you know, on prac, did really well. And um, I, I was really happy working clinically. I never intended to be to come back and do research. I was just going to you know, I fixed one kid at a time and um, yeah, that's kind of where I was headed, I guess. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, that really shows the common expectation. I think that when you're good at something, you're obliged to do it. Yeah. So if you're smart enough to do something seen as intellectually more demanding than primary teaching, you were just encouraged to do so. And I think there are probably a lot of people, like even sports people who are really good at what they do, but if you don't love it, I mean, why should you feel obliged to do it it's mm. yeah it's such an interesting area of pathways in life and I felt a little bit like that in law that because I was good at it and because I got the opportunities that other people coveted that I should do it because it's a sensible way to use my brain and that should be enough mm. but I'm so glad that you nonetheless found ways to enjoy speech pathology and that mm. education found you again anyway even in a different way so mm -hmm. sometimes I think it is really about taking control of your choices and circumstances but other times it can be about just sitting and being more open to opportunities finding you even if you didn't plan them so how did that next phase all unravel for you? No, it's um, it, it's funny. I still even now, you know, on a bad day, will say, God, I was a good speech pathologist. I would have had a great life in the clinic. <laughs> um, or say, there's always private practice, you know, if we're having a bad day at, at work. I got approached by a, a mentor or a supervisor from uni, you know, a, a teacher or an educator that I really ad admired. And um, there was an opportunity to do a, uh, a PhD. And I was really naive. Sarah, I didn't know what, how hard it would be you know I was in my 20s it was I was chuffed someone had asked me and I think the thing about um, that I'm coming to learn about mentors is you can have them but often people still will have a view of what they think you should do and sometimes they've got some skin in that game yes. and so I think I'm as you know, the wise old age of 37, um, <laughs> learning, you can, you can take advice from mentors, but you can just pick and let that marinate and still decide what fits with, with you. Yes, um, so I don't know if I had my time again, I would say yes. I think it was far harder than I ever, ever thought. But I said yes, because I guess I'm someone that thinks if you say no, it means you're admitting you can't do it. So I said yes, kind of purely to prove that I, I could. Um, that was like a five-year, seven-day-a-week commitment. So I left this beautiful full-time job. You know, you don't really get paid when you're doing PhD. But anyway, I, um, I did my PhD, not dissimilar to what we're doing now on telehealth. So this was 10 years ago. So no one knew about pandemics back 10 years ago, but it was about there's kids that can't access speech pathology services. And so they'll grow up stuttering or with literacy difficulties purely because of where they're born. You know, they're in a town or a um, region that don't have good access to healthcare. 
So I, um, yeah, worked with preschoolers and their families, so kids that were three to six, children who started uh, and looked at could we deliver all of their treatment online. And, um, and it did, it, it worked out. So I spent kind of three or four years still working. I was like, oh, I'm still a speech pathologist. I'll just kind of write it up at the end. Like, oh my God, what an idiot. <laughs> um, and so I spent three years kind of like this all day, every day, just working online with people. And, and this was kind of even before FaceTime. So kids hadn't really grown up being yeah. you know online. familiar with it yeah yeah so and, and kind of then as that came to its its end I was like you know I'm turning 30 I've got married we've got the mortgage next on that you know that 10-year plan is fall pregnant have the baby and I'll just kind of sneak that in before then I go on to you know what I, what I plan to do next so um and then that turned out to be a really different interesting <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. I'm very happy to talk about. But um, yeah, that was kind of the end of the PhD. Went into, I remember working out after I knew when my submission date was, being like, right now I can get pregnant, you know? And you just, oh, yeah. oh my gosh, how naive I think or how for granted we take fertility or what we think it is um, yes. in terms of, you know, oh, we'll just plan this and I'll plan this and then that month there and da 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 so yeah, so then um, I yeah fell pregnant, kind of handed in my my thesis. Um, I remember going on maternity leave, and my corrections from my thesis came back. And so sitting on my Swiss ball at my laptop in the first week of maternity leave, <laughs> I'd worked up till thirty eight weeks, sitting there like madly trying to get these corrections done and open up all my stats and just trying to get it back together to get it done before the baby came yeah um, so yeah it was an interesting time so before we've even gotten to the really juicy stuff I've already learned so much from you because I'm quite similar in my default need to plan things out have control and also to kind of seek that intellectual approval which then often leads me to say yes to things that I really haven't considered whether I want to do it or not. And I actually mm -hmm. mention in the CZA book this concept of making decisions on a macro versus a micro level. Like often you say yes because the macro, the bigger picture sounds like the title of what you're doing sounds cool, but the micro details of what it actually involves, you get there and you're like, I don't like this. Why did I say yes to this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also coming back to something else you said a while back, um, sorry, my brain's going everywhere, I'm just remembering it now. You said about the intellectual hustle that yours isn't necessarily an entrepreneurial one, but I also am always at pains here to say that you don't have to start a business to be entrepreneurial. And mm -hmm. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I really bandy around intrapreneurial a lot because I think even a pathway within a structure of employment can be so creative and innovative. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you looking at telehealth years before any of us had heard that word, and then obviously this year became so relevant. That is right up there in the innovative arena. So don't do yourself a disservice by, <laughs> by cancelling out any entrepreneurial value in your pathway. But then pregnancy onwards really <laughs> threw your world upside down. And I really, really appreciate you being so willing to open up about your journey with perinatal anxiety and depression or PANDA, as it's sometimes referred to. Yes. I think with areas of women's health that are heavily stigmatized like this, you know, normalizing it through conversations like this one, it's just so important. 
It's, you know, it's the way that people get an antidote to their loneliness, but also help people know to look for things to diagnose them. And I think so many things go unnoticed for so long because uh, you don't know the signs to look for. So mm-hmm. when did you start sensing that something was up, you know, beyond just, you know, there's an expected level of change and upheaval when you're pregnant, but mm-hmm. I think that probably even makes it harder to know when something's gone a little bit further than normal. So how did it mm-hmm. all unravel for you? Mm-hmm. Look, I can certainly look back and wholeheartedly say that I would have been very unwell in my pregnancy with the the anxiety and just right from the start in terms of that, how could we possibly get what we want? How can this possibly be okay? I worked um, in paediatrics and have been exposed to disability, so I was just petrified that there was always going to be something wrong and And maybe that was the whole reason I got this calling to speech pathology because I'm going to have to be one for my own child and just that absolute catastrophic kind of thinking that that way. I was obsessive with, you know, I didn't have one pregnancy book. I had three and I would every (laughs) Sunday night read the the chapter for, you know, week 14 from book ABC and cross-reference them and then Google them. And so was just obsessive about everything I put in my body. I was, you know, scared to drive my car because I was worried I would have an accident and just the the responsibility you take growing this baby in you because I wanted it so much. You know, people, you talk about that um, aching ovary feeling and you yeah. just I had that yearning in my body probably probably the last 18 months of my PhD and I was working with families and I'd just see these little toddlers and the, the mums and um, I just had that like ache inside me. So I didn't enjoy pregnancy at all um I didn't have that glow I didn't like the way that I I looked um I was really angry with my husband that he was going to get the picture but didn't have to give up you know he's going to take a week off work and then everything else will go back to normal um (laughs) his body was fine and you know I would say this week it says that I'm going to grow this and like I was angry I was so angry at him and um, I was just obsessed with all of the regulations about the cots and the foods and everything and the birthing classes and the, they spent so much time talking about epidurals and forceps and I was just so caught in that. Mm. At the time, though, I certainly didn't identify that as being anything else than just reading up and getting ready like was my next was my next thesis that's what I was researching so I didn't know I guess that at the the start and we had had Jack and I had him pretty quickly and um, you know birth plan didn't go didn't go there was a bit of trauma around him coming out I was pretty upset and disappointed that I hadn't um, been successful in my birth and the way I'd wanted it to to go and um, Sarah I think it's like, I, and I did actually went into shock and the photos of me are that I have blue, and it's quite common when it happens quickly and the adrenaline throws in your body. I kind of was shaking afterwards and had those blue lips. Wow. I just felt like the switch never got flipped back. Yeah. And that very night, you know, we got back to the room, George was like, <sighs> asleep because he'd had such a big day watching me give birth. Yeah, just <laughs> laid there watching Jack perfect little boy in and I would just every couple of minutes would just tap the side of the cot to startle him because right from then I was worried about SIDS and all of that kind of thing and you know day three they come in and do their little hearing test and I was like 
only today's the day we'll find out our life's not perfect. You know, it's just that, that thought that you're not maybe worthy of things working out. And um, we drove home from the hospital and I felt like I was in the treatment show. Everything around me was like moving in slow motion and I, I was disoriented and I, we got home, but I didn't recognize it. And mm. um, it was kind of it's disassociation, but I didn't know that at, at the time. And then, yeah, just kind of really unraveled from there. He was just so precious that my whole being became about keeping him safe. Yeah obsessively we lived on a sixth floor apartment and I was scared of the balcony because I was scared that maybe he would you know the Michael Jackson he'd fall or Daniel yeah. he would cry in the cot and I was petrified of picking him up because I'd been given the shaken baby brochure so I was thinking they must have given that to me because they think I'll do that so yeah. I would sit and watch him cry and think well He's crying, but if I pick him up, I might end up doing this. And, you know, I was scared to take him for a walk in the pram because I was scared that if I crossed the road, we'd get stuck and the tram would hit us. And it was just that exhausting, you know, every minute was just mm. like, this could go wrong, this could go wrong. And then it got to the point where um, my mind would circumlocute those thoughts. And I was thinking, I wanted to do that. So I was spending my day going, oh my God, I want to shake my baby. Oh my God, I think I'm going to drop my baby over. So I then thought that this person who had always wanted to work with kids and been great with other people's kids, kind of thought I was a bit of a monster, you know, mm. and this, kind of escalated at about eight or nine weeks and um, when it was to the point where I'm really lucky I'm health trained I've worked with families I'm trained to identify handy or anxiety I guess and um, yeah you know I had said to the the health nurse this is this is, I'm, I'm in real trouble I can't keep him safe I can't look after him and I think what was really tricky Sarah is that I don't think people asked me how I was because they thought cognitively I'd be a great mum. But I also wasn't eating and was pretty unwell. So I was shedding weight. So people would say, gosh, you look good. Yeah. So you can't then say, actually, I've absolutely lost control of my mind. Or, um, you know, I'm always someone that would put armour on. So, you know, be dressed well, face of makeup, I've got my Minco baby bag and I've lost the baby weight. Like I look like I'm in control. And um, I think when we're high functioning people, we do. And um, I think, you know, I'd say things like, oh, this is just, gosh, this is hard. And yeah. people say things to me like, oh, you're just, you're just not used to having control or you're just a perfectionist. And um, I think, it's funny, people in my life would say, I didn't ask for help. And I would say, I don't think people heard me. I think we were talking different things or different languages. And I also think there is so much trauma for so many women that you might open up about something and they go straight into what their birth story was. Or, you know, I had it, and my husband is amazing. He's one of the reasons I'm sitting here today, you know, and, and breathing air. So, oh, but you're so lucky because George does this and George does that. I'm like, yeah, but I'm still really struggling. Yeah. So I ended up on my birthday, <laughs> my 31st birthday, oh. um, being admitted to a mother and baby unit at a psych hospital. And um, I've got these photos, Sarah, of Jack and I that morning because I, I wanted Jack to have a memory of me. I didn't think that we were 
kind of going to come out of that hospital together. That's just, I was so warped and disoriented in who I thought I was and um, what I thought I had, had become. We ended up in there for three weeks. It's like a bit of a school camp. There was kind of four or five other mums in there with babies and kind of having to deal with ourselves we it's funny Sarah you know people would say you know when I'd give this oh it's a bit hard or I'm you know I'm not sleeping he's sleeping I'm not sleeping you know those kind of throwaway lines oh they don't come with a manual I'm like (laughs) yes they do it's Google like there is nothing you cannot Google I've got the baby I know I was calling around trying to get a hospital place and someone said one of the intake workers said to me look, we don't have anything for mothers, but I've got three days in the sleep unit for the baby. And I remember thinking, the baby's fine. It's me. And when people visit you, they go straight to your baby. And then they might say, you look good. And I go, where do I go from there? So, um, yeah. So, yeah. So we kind of, we ended up there and um, it was was about a two-year process for us in terms of really working through that um i say us because it was jack george and i on that journey and probably our families a bit as well yeah so yeah it was it was really tricky really tough i really i I really can't imagine how tricky that time was and i so so appreciate you being so open about it because i think that's why these conversations are so important because most of us can't imagine it without having been there Mm. or really know the right things to say to Mm. someone who might be experiencing something Mm. like this or to ourselves if we're experiencing it so I mean, without even going through it myself, I can see that motherhood is, it's the time where we're the most judgmental on ourselves, but also of other mothers. And I kind of feel like it's the one time where people's need to comment or judge what everyone else is doing is so heightened. And we all expect birth to be like this magical moment where, you know, the child is put on your skin and you bond instantly and everything just clicks into place. And so many other areas like this of women's health go undiagnosed for so long too because we rationalise that it's all just part of relinquishing control or a big life change. But, mm. I mean, I can only imagine how much work it's taken to get you to where you can talk about it like this now and hearing even up till this point so much of this interview, you just sound so well-adjusted and so able to express how you were feeling and um, a cr- huge credit to you because I can only imagine how hard it was to get to this point. Yeah, look, I think, you know, one in five women, but certainly one in five of the women that I've been around or know or work with, or I hadn't heard that in my circles before. Mm. And that's one in five women, doesn't matter whether you've had a mental health history before or not. And I think, um, you know, we even call it PND. So we're thinking about this glumness of depression. But I initially wasn't depressed at all. It was just that manic anxiety. And also that really being acutely aware of what you if you say something it's real you know and I kind of opening that that up and and being honest but I think also too you just it's such you know what anxiety is like you're so lonely that um you're just looking for kind of stories or someone else to click or that first night in hospital I sent my parents a link and it was Emma Shiano who'd done an interview on Beyond Blue about her experience and I said this is what I feel like I couldn't even explain Mm. to them what was going on I just needed someone else's words and I couldn't even confront them or couldn't anything about them so I guess yeah I think we need to talk about it and I'm now that terrible friend when anyone whenever anyone's pregnant I'm like 
Now you just know, <laughs> just letting you know, because I wish someone had told me and I don't want to be, you know, speak squirrel society where you don't share and you don't say, mm. um, but like Jack's six and a half now. And as I said, it probably took until he was about three till we had got into what our family was like, what our life was like, that I'd healed and was well and dealt with, with everything. And it's part of me now, not who I am, but mm. um, there's a lot of hours in, in therapy and up at the pharmacy. And, <laughs> you know, that's a big team. I did two yoga health trips over to Bali, you know, have, have put a lot of work and, and maybe that's at the start, that gratitude practice like that's, I've paid thousands of dollars <laughs> that way. <laughs> well, I think you've done incredibly well. And I think one of the big, big signs that you're on the other side is your ability to really articulate it in an almost detached way, as if it's mm. like you're observing another person who's experienced something yeah. so that you can help other people, so that you can go into the depths of it and explain what it feels like as closely as someone who hasn't experienced it might be able to understand. Mm. I also think women as a mass generalization, but put a lot of pressure on themselves regardless to be a good mum and to be a good parent and to give their kids the best everything. And there's so much self-worth tied up with how you appear as a mother Mm. in society and the failure that you must have felt or even, I don't I'm not even sure you were able to process those feelings at the time. Yeah, no, it was. But yeah, I think it, it can it can sometimes be quite heavy to cover topics like this. But I also think it's incredibly positive to also hear that you can come through it and you can rebuild your identity and joy as you have. Mm. But mm. we're also mm. very, very instant gratuity focused in this day and age and want to heal straight away. I mean, in obviously a condition like this, but in any kind of health event or your mental or physical hearing that it's a two to three year journey would be so frustrating, particularly for sort of like an A-type perfectionist high achiever. So for anyone else who's going through something like this, where the process is quite slow, how did you go gently on yourself? What were the steps for you to kind of heal? Yeah, look, do you know what? I think I kind of stepped forward just to answer that question, but I, um, when I came out of hospital, was put into a, uh, funny, a remedial mother's class. And so um, people that had had PND and been in hospital who kind of had missed our local community council um, mother's classes so we went to mum school and like a day a week we'd take our babies and they'd you know talk to us about how to play and attach and how we'd think and deal with our husbands and so yeah we went to remedial mum school that that's my tribe those those five girlfriends and we're still you know on the whatsapp every day (laughs) my dearest dearest friends and I think um I have then watched them on different journeys I personally am incredibly grateful that it was so bad because I had to break to rebuild. And sometimes when you're just struggling and battling, but you actually can keep your head above water, Mm. people, you know, they keep going with that and they're still maybe there's some issues that um, are haunting them or some things people carry. Whereas, um, and I actually did go back into hospital two more times in that, period just myself not jack and um there was i was always this oh my god i'm such a failure i don't want to go back in there but then also this relief of as soon as you walk in the door and be admitted i'm not responsible for me anymore someone else is there to look after me so i think kind of resigning to that like i need to be 
looked after. I believed in medicine. I believed in psychiatry. Um, I had good outcomes and success. I have enormous privilege that I could access private healthcare. Um, and I, you know, my heart breaks really for people that don't have that that access because maybe they don't have the success story that I do. So I think I think that I think um, and I just as I said, hours and hours and hours of work on firstly accepting that's what happened, having that self-compassion and grieving, you know, grieving that it, that it wasn't the, the maternity leave, grieving that ultimately we've made the decision not to have another child and, and it not wallowing, but grieving and having help with saying it's okay to work through things not looking like you thought. Yeah. And, and I think having that guidance and you know I said I yoga and vegan and green smoothies and all of those things I think help with your wellness when you get to a point of being well I was lucky when I let people in they helped me but I had to explain and ask for what I needed yeah so I you know my I owe my life to my psychiatrist and my husband and my little boy Jack you know he's just this angel that was sent to me just going through that and writing it yeah kind of leaning into when it works and when it it doesn't and just with time and distance and healing we've been able to we've been able to kind of move move through that and now just be so grateful for for what we have and having that little family so many turns it could have been different you know we we might not have stayed together or I might not have stayed with Jack and George or you know just different things so that time but doing the work yeah I'm so big on the concept of sliding doors moments and being so grateful that the one you ended up on right now, Mm. you know, there are so many ways that your life could have turned out differently, not just you, anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we take for granted that one small thing along the way could have changed the way that we are. And there was a quote in the context of Corona and like this year, a lot of people are grieving the year that they they lost in theory and I, I imagine you would be grieving the three years where you weren't yourself and you couldn't enjoy what you thought that part of your 30s was going to look like mm-hmm. and yeah. something I read during that time was that don't think that just because it could have been different that it necessarily would have been better because mm. we mm-hmm. always assume I wish it wasn't like this no 100% and assume it would have been better but it actually could have been worse as well so like be careful what you wish for because you know yeah or I think it can be both you know it probably took me about six months for my psychologist to get through my head the idea of duality yes. and it can be both you can be grateful and upset yes and be optimistic for the future and still hurt about the past you can be grateful for one child and be grieving that you've decided not to have another so it can be both Mm. people can help you and let you down you know and so I'm such a black or white either or Um, (laughs) so I think that and I I absolutely agree with you you know I think it trivializes any type of illness when we say oh so grateful that I had cancer because it made me see I think we would have had a great life had we have not gone through that. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm not grateful for that happening, but you have to lean into the path you end up on. And I am grateful for the lessons because every single day I am grateful that I get to be Jack's mum. It was such an enormous moment of success for our family when we got to that first day 
of school mm. um, when we, you oh, know, we, we've been bike riding and the three of us out on the bike ride. <laughs> when we bought this house seven years ago behind a bike track, that was the vision we had. So we are living so many of those dreams we thought we, I thought I would have and I can see them now. And I also, I wouldn't be successful now if I hadn't been able to be a part-time stay-at-home mum. Yeah. So I went back to work full time because I couldn't care for Jack and I couldn't handle having him in childcare full time but sitting at home. I couldn't handle socially what that would look like. But I, I couldn't go back and work with other people's families and treat their children while I put my own in childcare. Like I, I felt like that would have been betraying our family. Mm. So that's why I ended up in academia. Because <laughs> Those who can't do teach. And so I had wanted to be a teacher earlier on, but that's actually not what took me into teaching. I've had a really successful five years in that. And I've had a successful five years because I was a lesser mum than I had wanted to be. But I absolutely know that I would have dominated everything and George would not have had a foot in the door. You know, it would have been my way. I would have done everything on the weekends. I would have done everything. I would have done bed, bath, dinner every night. Mm. I would have done everything. So I kind of often think that duality is that I wasn't the mum I thought I would be, but my God had allowed for George just to grow and be the most amazing parent, mm. which means now he's like our our key parent primary parent at home you know he um started last year kind of stopped working full-time and he's our our person because he looks after me as much as he looks after Jack (laughs) Um, and so it's so different in such a beautiful way Mm. so I think yeah you just have to be grateful for where it, it, it ends up and lands up I can only be grateful for the one child I have so many people don't get to have a child you know, I've never had a, a lost pregnancy. So there's a lot of women that will always grieve an unborn child in lots of different ways. Yeah. But I have a beautiful partner, a beautiful son. I've got a little niece who is just like when she was born, she was like the missing piece of my heart. Oh. So I got a second child, but I didn't have it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. Bonus. So I was <laughs> adopted. So I always say I'm like the one person in the world who is actually allowed to genuinely believe that my parents never had to have sex. Like yeah. physically it never had to happen. So I'm allowed to believe that it didn't. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, your mom didn't have any stress or anxiety whatsoever. No, totally not. And I was like six months old. So she literally had this random baby just like plonked on her without any lead up of pregnancy and hormones and it was just like ah (laughs) no it's funny you say that I remember the only kind of person that I'd wobbled to a bit in my pregnancy early on um, was my boss at work and it was because I'd taken this new job and then in my plan about well got to try so long before you know you're fertile or you're not fertile blah, blah, blah. and then I felt pregnant very quickly because you know high achiever get everything right the first time and absolutely saying to her I'm so sorry I didn't ex- I mean it was planned but I didn't expect you know uh, crying in her office and she put her hands on my shoulder and she said it's okay that's why you've got nine months to adjust and I guess <laughs> that's like your mum you know I imagine she had worked for a while at adopting, like it wasn't something she decided to do overnight, but yeah, Yeah. maybe didn't have that preparation. Yeah. (laughs) So what would you say, I think something that I don't discuss as often is that, and I've um, mentioned it actually in the CCA book that I'm 
all about optimizing your joy and finding the yay, but there are big, big periods of your life where it's just not appropriate. It's just not the right time for you to be seeking change and growth. And, you know, I love the discomfort zone, but obviously in that three years, you had more than enough discomfort to deal with before cultivating joy was like, the very lowest priority it was just get yourself healthy mm. how has your view on joy and fulfillment and happiness and also success mm. and what you aspire to change particularly being someone and me deeply and intimately understanding the perfectionism that you come from and the self-worth tied up in achievement and things turning out the way you want. It sounds like you've gone from that black and white place to seeing a lot of nuances in the gray areas. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about those those concepts now? I think probably the first thing to say is that it's okay to let yourself feel joy or just a moment of joy or moment of happiness when things, you know, they don't have to be perfect to be wonderful or mm you know, dance in the rain, sort of getting our umbrella, all those kinds of of things. So I think I deprive myself of allowing to feel happy or joy because of the kind of grief and guilt that I was feeling around mothering. So I think it doesn't have to be an amazing day. First, it's a moment and then it's an hour and then they're just little bits. And then I also, it was purely in my personal life. So I loved work because my mind just switched, no anxiety, no worry, nothing. That was only ever associated with Jack and being at home. So as long as I wasn't with him or at home, I was fine, but I wouldn't allow myself to celebrate those wins because I didn't feel worthy of that. So I think, I think actually kind of seeking out those moments, but letting yourself have them, you know, and it rather than I'll be happy when being, oh, that was a good hour. That was beautiful playing out in the sun. Gee, that was a nice coffee. God, that was a great chat with so-and-so. I didn't cry today. You know, um, I think, those little moments, you grow a moment. And I also think, my God, the, put the oxygen mask on yourself gets bandied around a lot. But it, <laughs> it's actually true, you know, um, and it's not just superficial self-care. Like I get my hair done every four weeks. I had amazing work clothes. It was about that kind of heart, heart and soul healing. And yeah. so I guess that's where yoga and all of those things came in. That kind of was that, that healing. And then just accepting, you know, this is who I am. This is how we are. This is what it is. Yeah. And then now, as I said, being grateful every day, there's just something you're just like, wow, because we fought hard to get here. So I guess now it's easy to be happy and joyful because I know what it's like not to be. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I think there are a lot of moments in those times where our brains are just chemically unable to feel sometimes any emotion, but particularly joyful emotions that you really worry that you might ever be able to feel that again. Mm -hmm. But it it does just come in the small moments first and then it slowly, slowly those moments start to build out and then they join together and then um, eventually you find yourself healed if if you're willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're willing to forgive yourself, and I think that was probably the biggest piece for me but then also there's this weird thing where you kind of almost don't want to let go of it because then it it wasn't so bad or as real you know (laughs) so you kind of have this ickiness around about it's that's like forgiveness isn't it sometimes we struggle forgiving someone because then we're saying it wasn't what they did wasn't that bad yeah um so there's that kind of 
thing about people, you know, accepting things they've done in their past they're not proud of or, mm. or that kind of thing. So I think working through that and then, um, yeah, just being aware of other people's circumstances and situations. So now I would say rather than that was so unfair that happened to me, I'm so grateful I was admitted on a day that that psychiatrist was on because he, I had an amazing doctor. I'm so grateful that my husband who I met drunk at 22 turned out <laughs> such an amazing man, you know. I'm so grateful that our families who had no exposure to mental health really hustled to try and help us the best they could. Mm. So grateful for the little boy that we ended up growing and having and now I can choose how I look at it and, yeah. um, and now I sleep fine at night and happy to, you know, look in the mirror and be seen as a family in public and, and those types. Oh, amazing, Kate. Oh, that is just so, so wonderful to hear and so reassuring to anyone who might find themselves in such a deep place of adversity and challenge that there are ways through, there are, there's help available. It will in, take an incredible amount of work to work through the psychological side mm -hmm. of any kind of period of illness, but you can get there and you can yeah. refine your ability to reframe things. It just takes some time mm, mm, mm. so the last section is called play ta i think nata has kind of been mixed in <laughs> in the mix <laughs> but i also think with a really defining experience and particularly in a decade like your 30s is a very big formative decade i mean every married house phd kid you know like enormous we did that in five years so oh my god the, um, sorry to interrupt you but in the you know the coronaness of it all and things happen and I kind of would say to George kind of good that the worst thing in our lives has happened to us you know <laughs> um and, and if we're not it doesn't mean something bad won't happen again but you're just like oh we've lived bad this isn't bad we can you cope I think um, with really defining experiences, it's really hard. I mean, it's hard for all of us to find an identity outside our titles and mm. like our roles and our jobs and our productivity. And I find it enormously difficult to separate my identity from achievement and positive reinforcement and intellectual stimulation. Mm. But particularly when there's been something transformative or grief associated, yeah. I think it's hard to not be Kate who's had panda yeah. or Kate who's been through a health event kind of thing. Yeah. 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 When you're cultivating play mm. and allowing yourself to forget all your titles and all your roles and lecturing and mothering and wifing, what do you do in those moments where you forget what time it is and where you are just purely joyful mm, I think part of the reason I love being the kids is play and I'm really lucky that yeah. I learned how to play so I think you know growing those moments with Jack came from playing with him and being lost in in that kind of play and the, the way they see see the world mm. my mind always goes and I think the thing is your strength is always your weakness so for 33 or 34 years of my life my mind has been amazing and has led to me to amazing places and then a couple of years it was my absolute weakness and the what it could do really led me down a, a wrong path but um always something that's got my mind captured so it's only still if I'm asleep so I'm a lot better at like napping or like sleeping properly I am not a music person but a podcast person so I just love I love words you know so whether it's that listening and thinking reading just love a book page turning a book so I think that and then um, yoga still very much 
is kind of calming and, and, and centering mm. for me. And then, um, yeah, I think I like, I like baking. I'm not, a, I'm not a cook. George, George does all of that, but I like that kind of Martha Stewart <laughs> idea of the baking, you know? Uh, Amazing. <laughs> baking and soups. So every Sunday I'll do it like a soup. And a, and a cake, and that's my contribution to the house for the week. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Second last question, three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. Uh, I am heavily reliant on my husband, so I'm a store feminist, but very reliant on, on him for everything from, you know, paying the bills, oh, adding the money, but in terms of, you know, paying the, literally the paying the bills, um, you know, taking the garbage out, can't park a car, can't reverse parallel park. <laughs> He's the Good parker. Um, you know, I got my license back where you, you were taught to pass a test. Yeah. And I lived out in the suburbs, so we didn't have to negotiate anything really. But 20 years later, I still can't reverse parallel park because I only learned how to do it to do that test. Amazing. Um, <laughs> that. Um, I'm a real talker, but I'm petrified of the phone. I just don't call people. Oh my gosh. I love you for that because mm. I'm exactly the same. Love a chat, like absolutely love to have a yak, but can't do phone calls. Hate them. Hate them. No, or spontaneous phone calls. So I can book, you know, something like this. I'll oh, same. Book into Zoom or FaceTime or yep. I will text to visit you and, and people. But in my personal life, the only person I will call is my 92-year-old grandma. Like, <laughs> so. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, so oh. probably why when I do talk to people, I'm like, <laughs> Well, you know it's welcome here. <laughs> and since I love quotes so much, what's your favourite quote? Do you know, I've, I've got to, I'm a quote person. I've got the books and the things, the things everywhere. And I think probably one a bit more serious. So I'll, I'll start with that one. And it's one that my, um, my, my doctor used to say to me. And it's, I thought, you know, he's this wise, amazing health professional. Clearly it's grounded in evidence or research. Turns out <laughs> it's from John Lennon. Oh, <laughs> of course. And it was that everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. And he used to say that to me and I used to think, you're a man, you've never had a baby, you don't know what you're talking about, this will never end or this will not end well. Um, <laughs> that was like in my, in my peak, but he was right. And so that echoes in my head with his accent. <laughs> um, and just that knowing and just sitting with that, I don't know how, but it will be yeah. all, all right. And if it's uncomfortable, that's okay. We're just going through that at, at the moment. And that scales really nicely just to shitty things in the afternoon mm. to, oh, my gosh, I don't know how we're going to pull this off. So I think that was almost like a mantra. That's you know? such a good one. And then I have, I'll show it to you because I'm sitting on my, at my desk. This is a beautiful um, a beautiful card. I said that I kind of don't speak to people on the phone. Maybe it came from I kind of was incommunicado when I was unwell and just completely disconnected and used to get these beautiful little cards and messages from different people. And um, this is from my, my bridesmaid, my very closest friend. Oh. And, um, it, Christopher Robin says to Winnie the Pooh, promise me you'll always remember you're braver than you believe, stronger than you seem and smarter than you think. Oh. And I keep that on my desk to a bit of a mirror, but also that idea that 
people always love you and want well for you. And even when you're someone that backs yourself, it's okay sometimes if you don't. Yeah, I just think that that's on a good day, it's cute, but on a, a tricky day or it's just, I guess, a little subtle homage to like, yeah, we've, we've done well, you know. <laughs> I have learned so much from this chat and I think you are extraordinarily brave for being willing to talk about it because I think these are the conversations that help so many other women either identify or give themselves permission to investigate what they're feeling further mm. and or people to check in on, on their friends or their family or their loved ones. And um, I just appreciate it so much. But and still do have a baby. Like they are, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So my thing is I just want people to know it might happen and that it's okay, <laughs> not it's bad. And I, I think um, my greatest discomfort around having um, a single child is that people will <laughs> think we don't love him or we were like, Oh God, that was a mistake. <laughs> no, so no one would ever think that. <laughs> it's the most amazing thing to to create something with your your person, you know, your partner, and um, to to have them out there. But it's that duality, Sarah. It is the most amazing thing, but doesn't mean it's not hard. <laughs> yeah, and you know that subtlety of the duality of everything in life. Once you understand that and accept it, everything is so much easier to navigate. Mm. I think. It, that's a, that in itself is like a life-changing revelation of that things can be two things at once mm. and we don't try and force ourselves to just like, what is the one single answer? What is the one single thing that you're feeling right now? I love that it can be both. And in 2020, I think it's even more relevant than it's ever been. Oh, it just is, you know, it just is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing so generously of your story and yourself. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I so appreciate it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I really don't know how to wrap this one up without going on for an age. So I'll just say I am really honoured that Kate shared her story so openly and really hope that some of the deeper conversations we share here help a few of you in your own experiences or in supporting loved ones going through the same. The more we talk about the tougher, more stigmatised areas of life, the more access people have, I think, to information and support and also hope that they can refind their yay amongst it all. Of all the things that make certain conditions tough, loneliness isn't something that anyone should have to face. I hope you found this as enlightening as I did. Please share tagging at kate.bridgman and myself with any questions or thoughts. She is an absolute hero of mine. And if you are having a tough time, I know it can seem like reaching out for help is a weakness, but it is actually the bravest thing you could ever do. Please don't hesitate. I'll include some links to helplines in the show notes, but you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. As you all know, I too have struggled at times with severe anxiety, but hope to really remind you all that you can manage mental health conditions and still live a delightfully fulfilling and expansive life. It's just a matter of learning the right strategies and the way to manage it. Hope you're having a wonderful week and a seizing your yay.